listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Well, please, your Bibles and turn with me to Ezra, Ezra chapter 1. We want to begin a new series of studies in this book and the Word of God. I think this book is very relevant to us in our own uh, life and church and witness at this time. Uh, and I trust it will be a word in season uh, to all of our souls. Let's read again the verse number 1 of Ezra chapter 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stood up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Amen. This is God's Word to your hearts again. May God be pleased to help us to understand it, to consider it carefully tonight and in the coming, in the coming weeks. Ezra, it's a very short book. It's only ten chapters. It could be read in well under an hour if you read it even slowly. And it's also not all that terribly complicated. Okay, chapter 10 is tricky enough. There's a long list of names through the book, but it's a fairly simple and straightforward book. And yet, by many preachers, it has been neglected. And I put myself in that same category. Twice I've preached through the book of Nehemiah in churches, and not once have I preached through Ezra. And that's a pattern for many people. It seems to me that, that Nehemiah is the, the favorite of these two uh, sister books, and they really should be taken uh, together. But Ezra, for some reason or other, has been somewhat neglected. Well, I trust we'll change that in the coming weeks. The theme of the book really is a theme of restoration, a theme of return. The captives returning to the land and again rebuilding the temple and it's reestablishing uh, God-honoring worship. And it's that sense of restoration, return, and renewal uh, that really strikes our hearts because the objective of such renewal is God-honoring worship. They are brought back to the land, and they are encouraged as they come back to the land to give themselves wholeheartedly to the proper and biblical worship of God. And so we thought in recent times about the necessity of reapplying our hearts to God-honoring worship. Uh, we would not be careless and negligent as a church, even in this place, but we'd rather give ourselves to a renewed focus to worship our God in spirit and in truth. That's the theme of the book in many ways. And it begins with this character in verse 1 named Cyrus, king of Persia. Cyrus's name occurs in the Scriptures uh, just over 20 times. It's there in 2 Chronicles 36. And really over in 2 Chronicles 36, you have the same words ending that portion of God's Word. And beginning here, the words in Ezra chapter 1. You'll see that in the, the very page of your Bible. There's a clear linking between uh, the two sections. We also, of course, have his name here several times in Ezra, and we find him also over in, in Daniel. Really, though, in Daniel, there are simply time markers as to when Daniel was involved with the reign of the various kings. But interestingly, above those kind of historical portions, 
We find Cyrus' name significantly in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, and we're going to turn there uh, shortly this evening. Ezra, though, doesn't mention Isaiah. He mentions Jeremiah. And there he's referring to the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. That, that word that refers to the 70 years of the captivity prior to the return. And Ezra's making mention, and Cyrus is making mention of that word from God through Jeremiah. But when you get to Isaiah's prophecy in chapters 44 and 45, what you see there really is the scene being set theologically for Ezra. None of God's words in history are separated from God's character. And what happens in history happens because of the character of God. And we see that theological link in Isaiah 44 and 45. The, the theology undergirding Ezra is found in those portions. But before we get there, it's good to again to remind ourselves of the basic history of this section. Uh, I don't want to take your time to go through all the details, but we can certainly go back as far as Solomon. Solomon and the temple is built, and after Solomon's reign, there is a division, north and the south, again the ten tribes in the north, which very quickly go into the lane of apostasy. We've seen that in the reign of Ahab. Uh, we see how quickly the north go into apostasy, ultimately uh, being taken captive by the Assyrians. In the south, again, takes on the name Judah, things were somewhat better. Again, there are, there are many bad kings, but there are some good kings as well, and uh, their wickedness does also increase. And when you get to, again, Isaiah, you see Isaiah condemning the people for their hypocrisy, for their idolatry, for their immorality, and warning them of the Babylonian captivity. And so that's the scene that is set here. But God, in his kindness, made promises through Isaiah and also Jeremiah of a return. That the captivity would not be permanent, not like the northern kingdom that never really came back to the land, but rather there would be a return to the land of Judah in God's timing and in God's goodness. And so let me fast forward to the year 539 B.C., or thereabouts. Again, all of the dates in the, in the historical narratives sometimes are, are off a year or two, different people, different ideas of the years. But let's say it's 539 BC and Cyrus is king in Persia and he captures Babylon. Now, there's one just detail to mention to you. Not, I'm not going to take time on it, but just to mention it to you. In the book of Daniel, the first king of Persia mentioned is called Darius at the end of Daniel chapter 5. And Cyrus appears to be ruling after Darius. And so it looks like in Daniel that Darius comes first, followed by the reign of Cyrus. But if you turn across to Ezra chapter 4 and the verse number 5, you'll see what it says here. And had counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even unto the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And so there you seem to get the idea that Cyrus comes first and not Darius. And the difficult section is over and turn across to Daniel chapter uh, 6. Again, I, I, this is not needed to take our time, but it's just worth noting it, um, that it will not put you off when you think of the history of this section. But over in Daniel chapter 6, and the verse number 28, you'll see again the mention of these two individuals. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. And so you can see the obvious difficulty here. Well, in Ezra, it seems to be the case that 
Cyrus comes first followed by Darius, but here in Daniel 6, it looks like it's Darius followed by Cyrus. And so what's the situation? Well, to my mind, the best explanation is that the name Darius used here in Daniel chapter 6 is, if you like, a throne name for Cyrus. Now, you, you get that in terms of, of the, the kings and the queens of England, uh, that someone had a, a given name, and then they become king, and they're, they're given a throne name, a royal name, when they begin to reign as a monarch. And there are those who, who feel that the sense of Daniel chapter 6 is this, Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius, but not the next Darius, not the, the Darius who's called by Darius, but rather in the reign of Darius, that is Cyrus the Persian. And that, apparently, the commentators say that is the most consistent way to resolve this seeming contradiction. That it wasn't uncommon, and it was the case at times, they took a throne name, and they used that. And so you see in Daniel 6, is really, it's Darius, but not the next one, it's a Darius who's also called Cyrus. Take that as you may, uh, but certainly we're looking at Cyrus, who in Ezra is, again, this king of Persia, at the time, 539 B.C., when he takes on the rule and the reign of, uh, of Persia, and at that time goes to capture Babylon. And so in his first year of his reign, again back in Ezra, we see in the first year of his reign, the word of the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus that he made this proclamation and this decree. And so Cyrus is now governor and king of Persia. They have now overthrown the Babylonians. And as they overthrew the Babylonians, at the same time, he issues this decree. There's another interesting feature here. In 1879, an archaeologist discovered a clay cylinder in two parts that had been dug into a foundation of a temple in Babylon itself. The cylinder, again, was covered in ancient script. And it was about 20 centimeters long. I'm sorry, this is an English book I'm reading from right now, so you've got to deal with this in metric terms. About 22 centimeters long and 10 centimeters in diameter. And the author uh, makes this point that in 1879, this particular cylinder was found. It's one of the British Museum's most precious artifacts. So much so, a copy was made and is in the United Nations building in New York. Now, why is that? Well, because it was a particular type of document at that time. It's not the precise edict of Ezra chapter 1, but it does confirm the veracity of the Bible text. The cylinder gives details of a more general edict that allowed people from all their homelands, and they would come back to their land. It's been known as the first human rights charter. And these aren't terribly significant things, but they do help us to see the authenticity of the Bible record. The Bible's true without that cylinder. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting for a sec that cylinder gives authenticity to the Bible, but it is a helpful confirmation. And it's certainly in God's kindness has been given to us that we see this and see, yes, this is a real man, Cyrus, and this real man, Cyrus, gave out this sort of decree and edict. So coming to Ezra 1 then, I don't think you can see this name Cyrus without giving attention to what is contained back in Isaiah 44 and 45. It does, as I say, set the scene for the underlying doctrines of the history of this book of Ezra. So turn across now, please, to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, and you look down at the verse number 28, you'll see a reference of Cyrus. 
Thus, that saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasures, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built into the temple, my foundations shall be laid. And then chapter 45, Thus saith the Lord, Tis anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaf gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now, if you're reading this and wondering to yourself, well, clearly Isaiah must have known of Cyrus overthrowing the Babylonians uh, and therefore uh, being able to do these sort of works and to help the people of God. But you must not forget that it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah sees the Lord. Around 200 years prior to the overflow of Babylon by the Persians. And this has been given by God 200 years prior to the events. And the man has been named, his name is Cyrus, and his work has been announced by God. Look at verse number 4. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. It's a wonderful display of the sovereignty of God in omniscience who's able to make these clear words of prophecy and bring them to pass perfectly. So Cyrus is undoubtedly an instrument in God's hand. It says here, verse 28 again, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. He's used by God to bring about the return of the people to the land. This was God's way. And really, humanly speaking, this had to happen. Either a Babylonian king or some overthrowing ruler had to decide now is the time to send the people back to their own land. The people themselves, given their weakness, would not be able to overthrow their captors. And the requirement was that someone would come and rise up on their behalf and send them back to their own land. And so God brings about this man to bring about return and ultimately to bring about renewal. Look early in chapter 44. Because again, this whole section is, is brimming full with words of return and hope and comfort. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, chapter 40. And chapter 44, look what it says. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. And thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thy Jeshurim, whom I have chosen. Fear not. The same language is used over in chapter, uh, the same chapter in verse number 24. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. And it's in light of that that the promise of Cyrus comes. But verse number 3, again, seeing these portions as being parallel, verse 3 says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground, and I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. And so Ezra's book that details the events of Cyrus is God's promise not only to bring the people back to the land, but also to renew them in spirit to the end that they'd worship God. It is akin to words of revival. God reviving his work in and through, in part, the agency of this human secular ruler named Cyrus. The people come back, and they're renewed in spirit. Now, you, you've read Ezra and Nehemiah, and you see many, many problems in the people's hearts. But there is a rediscovery and recovery of God's word and the worship of God's holy name. Cyrus, it is incredible. 
Cyrus, in God's hand, is an agent to bring about the renewal and the revival of God's people, such as the wonders of God's providence. And so this sets the stage. The people come back to the land, and again, what is God's purpose in that? Well, the stage is therefore set. They're back to their own land, and the stage is set for the coming Messiah. We've been studying chapter 40, 52 and 53, the suffering servant, uh, the, the good news that come as the people go back to the land that is with the expectation that Messiah will come. He'll, he won't be appreciated. He'll be disregarded and rejected, but he still will come unto his own. It wasn't necessary for the people to be in their land for Messiah to come. You look also across in chapter 54, and you'll see that part of these promises include the gospel to the Gentiles. So the people come back to their land, they're in Judah, Messiah comes. And as Messiah comes, God is going to break open the doors of separation and, and bring in Gentiles also. Verse number 3 of chapter 54, For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed. Again, uh, we don't have time now, but you'll see similar language used in chapter 54 to that used in chapter 44 and 45. Cyrus is playing a role in the furtherance of God's purpose of redemption. Don't minimize this. Cyrus is an instrument in God's hand to fulfill his covenantal redemptive purposes. And thus, when we consider God's dealings with Cyrus, we see God's way of working out his covenant, this covenant of grace. And again, I remind you back to Genesis 3. The seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's heads. The covenant promises worked out through Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through Moses and David, ultimately into the new covenant. These promises are being worked out in history. And Cyrus has a vital role to play in that because as he brings the people back to the land and sends them back, so Messiah comes and the Gentiles are gathered into the covenant promises. This is God working out his will. God doing his good and perfect will using human instruments, including this king called Cyrus. And so when you see these chapters in Isaiah, there are, again, significant things to note and to give consideration to regarding how does God work out his covenant promises. Well, first of all, we see God's sovereignty in accomplishing his will. Again, I'm going to say these things very briefly. We're going to move through it quickly, and we're going to bring this to a close. But I encourage you, these are basic things, but they're absolutely fundamental to a church prayer meeting. If you don't get these, you will not know how to pray in faith. God is sovereign in accomplishing his perfect will. Chapter 44, verse 26, 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Listen to the ring of certainty there. He belongs to God, and as he's an instrument in God's hand, so he shall do God's good pleasure. Not his own, but the pleasure of God shall prosper in Cyrus's hand. I'm not suggesting that's what's mentioned in Isaiah 53, but you get the same concept, that God's will will be accomplished in and through this man Cyrus. 
He will be successful. You look at the words of verse 1 of chapter 45. He will be able to open the leaf gates. And the idea being that there will be no hindrance to stop him going forward to overthrow the cities. The, the gates that protected the cities. He will go through those gates. Why? Because God is with him. And God, verse 2, will go before him and make the crooked places straight and break in pieces the gates of brass and cut asunder the bars of iron. He will succeed because God will enable him to succeed. Oh, the Persians are full of their own pride. Uh, they'll come to the point they believe they've accomplished all this in their own strength. No, it's God's strength. It's God they're brought about. You see, God, God can do what seems impossible. You know, if you're, a, if you're a, an Israelite, a Jew living in Babylon, who would have thought the Persians would conquer Babylon? Well, of course, if you're a student of the Word of God, you would understand these prophecies were coming to come to pass. You would understand that good well, God would raise up a man called Cyrus, who, who may well go under the rule of uh, the name of Darius, but he's going to do the good and perfect will of God. And I have strong suspicions that part of the reason that Cyrus understood the purpose of God was the ministry of Daniel. Daniel's there in his reign. And Daniel is there revealing the one true and living God in the reign of Cyrus. And Cyrus is bringing these words to pass. God did this. God did it. God alone can do these things that seem impossible. Nothing and no one can prevent God accomplishing his will. There are no gates of brass that God can't break open. And that's a wonderful hope for the people of God. If God has his purpose to save some soul that you're aware of, their gates of brass cannot overthrow the power of God. They cannot prevent the power of God. And so we, we pray for this area, we pray for this nation and that city, and we, we come to God in these things, and we do so to a God who's able to break in pieces the gates of brass. He's sovereign in the accomplishing of his will. He's faithful in the keeping of his covenant. Again, the purpose of this in all of these things is really God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant. Turn across to chapter 54. In chapter 54, again, I've pointed out already this is a parallel section also regarding the, the promise of God to, to bring the people back from captivity. Listen to verse number 7. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I will not be wrath with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that have mercy on thee. Why is God doing this? Why has God not abandoned his people in Babylon? Because he is faithful in keeping his covenant and he cannot deny his own name. As it says there in that text in verse number, uh, verse number 9, as he swore in the days of Noah, so he has sworn now in their day and generation that he will not take away his kindness from his people. God is going to keep his covenant through a saved remnant. Chapter 9 of Romans. 
through that remnant according to election of grace. He's going to keep his faithfulness with his people. And he's going to bring the Gentiles in. But all of this is because God has sworn to keep his word. And he cannot deny his name. You can pray tonight. Lord God, fulfill the application of your covenant. The covenant of redemption is the securing of the elect of God in this world. Those who have not heard the gospel, those who have not yet believed the gospel, their salvation is secure because the name of God underscores the covenant. He swears by his own name. And there is no higher, no greater swear by, but by the name of God. And so we have the assurance, Lord, bring in your elect. Oh, he'll do that without fail, without any possibility of losing any. His covenant promises are so sure, and he will keep his word. The third thing, and I'm going to mention this and come back to this next time uh, in, in some more detail. God is sovereign. Amen. He is sovereign in accomplishing his will. He's faithful in keeping his covenant. He's also jealous in defending his name. Again, Isaiah 44, looking back there, and I say, we'll come back to this in more detail. Isaiah 44 and the verse number 22. I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgression, and as a cloud thy sins. Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. And then look back at verse number 43. So the promises there is of God's redemption of people through the forgiveness of their sins. And back in chapter 43, Verse number 25, I, even I, am he that bloodeth out thy transgressions for mine own sake. The ultimate end whereby God delivers his people and does good to his people in the days of Ezra is for the honor and glory of his name. And so I remind you again tonight, we'll come back to this next time, but I remind you again tonight, we come to pray. And the first thing foremost in our petitions Hallowed be thy name. That the name of God would be hallowed in this world, that he would do his will in such a way that his name is glorified and exalted. And he asks us to pray in that regard. He is jealous to defend his own name. So amen. May God help us. We're just beginning to if you like, set the scene for this book and see the background. I trust you know the history. Remember the history of this. And God is certainly doing a great work in and through this ministry, this man uh, called Ezra, uh, but initially through the work of Cyrus, king of Persia. And God is able to do great things in our day. He's able to do things that we can't imagine, things we can't expect, things we would never predict. But God comes and does it for the glory of his name and the extension of Christ's church. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.